Welcome to Makeshift, a Mishbacha podcast examining the shifting trends affecting our community. I'm Sarah Eisman, your host. Today we will be discussing shifting trends in Kirov, and our guest today is Miriam Kosman, who I have the distinct pleasure of being both friends and family with. Miriam is the author of Circle, Arrow, Spiral, Exploring Gender and Judaism, which is now in its fourth reprinting, yay Miriam, and has been translated into French and Hebrew. She's a lecturer for Nefesh Yehudi, which is the Israeli branch of Olami, and in that capacity, she teaches Jewish thought and philosophy to hundreds of secular Israeli university students each week, as well as teaching courses on Jewish outreach that have been attended by hundreds of women. She's a writer for Mishpacha, and she continues to do academic research on the concept of masculinity and femininity in Torah sources. Miriam lives in Israel with her family, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here with her this morning. Thank you for joining us, Miriam. So nice to be here with you. So much fun to get together for work and play all at the same time. Are we allowed to reveal? Yeah, and you actually said that we're family, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes, we are. Miriam is my sister-in-law. And like I said, so much fun to be able to hang out with someone you like and to be working all at the same time. So I know all about your uh, background, but tell our listeners a little bit about how long you've been in Kirov and what it is that you do, how long you've been at it. Yes, I've been working in Kirov for many, many years. I would say uh, over 30, originally from Baltimore. And I we moved straight to B'nai Brak, my, you know, my husband and myself. And shortly after that, I started, um, I got Brock Lazarid, who's like, you know, this uh, Kirov guru in California, got in touch with me. She asked me if I would reach out to students at Tel Aviv University. So I started like that. I think it was even volunteer in those days, but I used to go to the university once a week and invite students to come over to B'nai Brak uh, once a week for a class. In those days, um, we didn't even have a phone. Wow. You know, not only that I didn't have a phone, they certainly didn't have cell phones. They had like, you know, there were a few pay phones on the campus. So it was like a whole complicated thing. They say they're coming on Monday night. There's really no way to know if they were actually going to come until they turned up by bus. Everything was just so much more hands-on. I mean, really person to person. Yeah. So like I would have a group of, uh, you know, anywhere from like seven to 20 students coming once a week to my little house in B'nai Brak. And then when I had children, I had some very good friends in B'nai Brak that, you know, their kids were younger, or they didn't have children yet. So we used to do it in their living room. But yeah, it was very, very hands-on. Sounds really cozy too. <laughs> cozy. And it gave me a light. I guess it's a good way to get to become a speaker because, you know, like you're giving a little class to 10, 15 students in your living room. Nobody really knows whether it was good or not. So you get to make all your mistakes and, uh, you know. <laughs> and I guess they certainly didn't have any Zoom recordings that people could download forever, huh? Right. Yeah, so then I worked for various different care of organizations in a more formal capacity. But then about 20 years ago, Nefesh UD started in Israel. Nefesh UD is a branch of Olami, which is like, you know, focused on college students. And I was there right from the beginning. I remember we had like a small group in Tel Aviv of about 30 students. And today there's probably 5,000 students in the program. We have centers all over the country. And, you know, as the organization got bigger, everybody took a smaller, you know, niche that became theirs. And I work as a lecturer. So I would say that in a given week, I speak to a few hundred students. And when I say speak, you know, I give classes, a lot of discussion groups. And, you know, the students in the Nefesh UD program, they come to like one Shabbat a year. I think that's part of the whole program. But because I'm on the staff, so I go probably to like 10 or 15 Shabbatot a year. And uh, wow. How did that whole shift from, 
you know, 15 people in your dining room versus lecturing to hundreds of students? Like, I'm assuming it had a huge impact, but how did it impact the whole cure of process, the whole cure of dynamic? I mean, are you still able to have relationships with people? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's important to say that, like, you know, I do a very specific kind of cure of, and in a certain way, you know, a very privileged kind of cure of. The organization is gigantic. Everybody has their job. Like, I'm not involved in recruiting and I'm not involved in, yeah, I wouldn't even say that today at this point in my life, I'm very involved in personal relationships. Sometimes, yes. But in general, like I said, I meet hundreds of students when I say that I go to a lot of Shabbosles. Shabbosles very, very often were up until like three, four in the morning, Friday night. You know, we have long discussion groups, Shabbos afternoon. So obviously, like, you know, relationship is developed, but I don't necessarily follow up with the students after it. So when I say it's privileged, I really, you know, you and I have a, a brother in Kirov who's a brother-in-law. He's responsible for the whole thing in New York, the recruiting and everything. And he always says, I'm so spoiled because he says, <laughs> giving classes is the easy part. You know, you just come in and give a class and he has to, you know, worry that they're going to first get them to the class and make sure that they stay in the class and then get them to register in different programs. So yeah, that's a good question. It's a very different kind of work today. I have that privilege of like really working with ideas with the students and really, you know, able to, I guess, do real hands-on care versus a lot of the, you know, the stuff around it, which is getting students to come and keeping up the relationship, et cetera. Wow. So to borrow a page out of your book, you get to sort of plant the seed and then somebody else has to uh, carry the pregnancy, huh? Right. So to speak. Totally. Wow. So 30 years, that's like a really long time to be doing something. What can you tell us from the ground? Like, what are some of the major shifts that you've seen? You mentioned that I wrote this book about genders. I have this little disability that any question anybody asks me always has to do with gender in the end. (laughs) You know, we'll talk about Kira, so uh, so she won't mention her book, but that's not going to happen. So I really do feel, you know, in my book, I talk a lot about how the world is moving towards a more feminine approach. And you can definitely see that in Kirov. Like when I think about, you know, the organizations that I used to work for and the type of Kirov that was done, I sort of want to maintain that it was sort of a masculine type of approach to Kirov in the sense that here is this absolute truth, which you don't know. I do know it. You don't. And now I'm going to prove it to you that there's this truth. And I'm basically going to knock you over the head with the truth. And if you don't accept the truth, it's probably because, you know, there's some sort of cognitive dissonance or I'm going to see if I can get you to face the truth. And then once you face the truth, you're obviously going to have to change your life. And when you look back at the Kirov movement, that really worked. And it was, you know, it's just amazing. People, many, many, many people, many Bali of that, that period of time, you know, they really, that's what they did. You know, they sort of discovered a truth and they changed their lives like completely. And Nowadays, not just in Kirov in general, like the whole world that we live in, the whole postmodern world that we live in is just, I would call it a much more feminine kind of perspective. And I sort of feel like that's dramatically changed the way we work with students. Personally, I very much more identify with this more feminine approach, which is more like meeting the person where they are, talking more about, you know, the subjective experience and how each of us feel towards this objective thing that exists outside us. Uh-huh. You know, so I feel like it's a big question and I feel like there has been very dramatic changes, but you know, I tend to look at it more from you're trying to understand the changes from a more philosophical perspective. So you've really shifted from like a hierarchical to a way more lateral approach. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. I sort of feel that um 
you know, a lot of times when people talk about the changes in Kirov, they talk about, you know, people have much shorter attention spans. They're not interested in, in really getting into things or they're not interested in truth. And I don't find that. I feel that there's more or less the same ratio of intelligent to uh, not so intelligent students in any <laughs> engaged versus less engaged, maybe. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I regularly, regularly talk for hours with students, but I don't find that to be true at all, that you can't really talk about real issues or that the students are less. I mean, I do think a lot has changed in the language, a lot has changed in the approach, but I feel that the idea that people are less interested in ideas and truth. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't call it truth. Like truth itself maybe has uh, that particular word may be less appealing, but I find that students are just as interested in discussing ideas. Uh-huh. Certainly in finding meaning, I would think. Right. You know, like if you really get into this like more feminine postmodern mindset. Mirab, can you tell us a little more about this feminine approach that you are alluding to? When I say feminine, again, I'm not just talking about curve. I'm saying that the world is moving towards a more feminine kind of perspective. Like, for example, there's a buzzword in postmodern society that everybody hears and uses and whatever, but it's very fundamental here. That's the idea of a narrative. A narrative is basically the idea, and I think there's an important point here. A narrative doesn't actually mean that there isn't a truth, there isn't a reality. It just means that everybody sees that reality from a different perspective. Right. So that's like a more feminine kind of approach in general, because the feminine always represents the subjective and the you know masculine always represents the objective. So I feel like that's a fascinating tool to use in Kirov. The minute that you understand that they're coming from a perspective that they believe that everybody has their own narrative of a particular historical truth. I mean, look at the whole issue right now with critical race theory. So there were slaves and there were, you know, the white people that settled, you know, so what actually happened? Obviously, you're going to have a different narrative if you're talking about, you know, how black people looked at it and how white people looked at it. It doesn't mean that there wasn't an actual historical event. It just means there's a different way of looking at it. So just recognizing that concept really gives you so many tools to work with Kirov. Yeah, what I hear in what you're saying is also making space for everyone at the table. It's sort of this equal space as opposed to one person sitting at the head of the table. So I'm curious, when you speak, is there some level of hierarchy there or does it just feel like a conversation among peers? Well, I mean, clearly there's a hierarchy and I, I, you know, we'll put it right there on the table. You know, in other words, we talk a lot. There's this idea of, you know, let's have a dialogue. But there is an element of dialogue here, but there's no question that when they come to Nefesh UD, it's clear that they're coming to learn from us. In other words, obviously, we want to get to know them. We want to talk about things. And that's part of the whole learning process. But they're coming to hear a class at Nefesh UD. They're coming to hear, you know, so there maybe there is a hierarchical aspect built into the system. But what I would do is very often is I would say to the students, this is not a question of right or wrong. This is like, let's say we would want to understand what's the Torah's narrative on this particular issue? What's the internal integrity from the perspective of Torah. Right. And we're not even discussing whether or not they believe it or not, or whether it's true or not. The discussion of whether you can prove or not prove Torah is a very interesting discussion, but it doesn't have to be relevant You know, when you're talking about another issue. You can just say, let's try and understand what's the internal integrity of Torah's perspective on this particular issue. In a way, I'm thinking that must be a real relief for a lot of the cure of people out there listening, because you're not getting locked into a battle of, you know, trying to convince anybody of anything. And yet people are coming to hear what you're saying. You know, that probably is a little bit of a relief, I would think. I find that you can really talk about any topic at all 
even the most loaded issues. And, you know, we all know what some of the loaded issues are. Mm-hmm. And I find it really, people are often surprised that I can do that. You know, like when people ask questions about gender identity or about, you know, different types of relationships that, you know, it's basically clear what the Torah has to say about it. The minute that you move from the idea of like an objective truth to the idea of like, okay, so we don't agree with this, but how does this perspective explain itself? Right. You've just reduced a tremendous, tremendous amount of tension and animosity because a person who prides themselves on being open-minded and understanding and receptive to, you know, multiple perspectives okay, let's understand this perspective. And no one's asking, like I, I often start off a class by saying, I, I don't expect anybody here to change their mind, right? In other words, <laughs> that's not our goal here. It's really just to try and understand, you know, another perspective. Yeah, I think perspective is not just a word, but it's a feeling that people can really attach themselves to. I think any thinking person can agree that we're going to have multiple perspectives on any issue. Like you said, you immediately turn down the heat Whereas I think sometimes in the past, I mean, I remember in the good old days of Kirov when feminism was like the hot button topic. And like you just said, I remember I once spoke and I said something about man this and man that. And I was talking about humanity and a woman walked out. She said, you know, if you're going to spend this entire lecture using the word man, I can't be here. And she just walked out. So that's funny. Yeah. So (laughs) it threw me for a loop. I'm not going to lie, but I did recover. But yeah, it's if you're able to share that this is a perspective and that there's going to be other perspectives, you immediately lower everybody's anxiety level coming in. And then people are much calmer and can actually listen. Right. And there can be an actual exchange, which is kind of the point. I just want to say, as, as a person you know, who believes the Torah is true, I can even say that. In other words, I'm not saying to them that there's many different narratives and this is one of the narratives. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of welcoming them into a worldview of somebody who believes there is an absolute, that there is an objective absolute truth. I'm explaining the perspective of a person who believes that. But if they're not that person, then they are just listening to a particular narrative. Right. And it's a fine line. Right. It's a fine line because you don't want to leave people with the idea that you believe that your beliefs are also negotiable or whatever. Right. And I want to just add something here, um, Sara, that I think is very important about this whole concept of narrative, that I think it's interesting that as you understand the narrative of today's world, you know, Torah is so vast that there's different ways. I, I don't want to use the word narrative about Torah, but there are different ways of presenting a particular idea. You know, for example, think about the idea of a mitzvah. So the shorish of the word mitzvah is commandment. Okay, and that exists. There's clearly Hashem, you know, is the commander and we are the commandees. That's, you know, a hierarchy. But for example, it's just interesting to know that like the Tsar talks about the idea that the word mitzvah has a shorish also of the word bitzavta, which means together. <laughs> and there's a concept of the idea of the mitzvahs that Hashem, as the mitzvah, as the commander, is sort of turning to us and inviting us to be bitzafta with him, to partner with Hashem, and to, you know, we have to do our job. But I'm just saying a tiny little example. There's many, many different examples. In other words, you know, it's the same Torah. The Tsar was always there. You know, I get, maybe people are more aware of it today, but I'm saying you can also choose from which perspective to explain an idea in a way that would be something that a person living in today's world could relate to better, right. to feel more inspired by. Right. 
something that your listeners can receive in a way that's meaningful and relates to their worldview as well. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm really curious because the bulk of your work is is in Eretz Yisrael, um, and yet you do speak, you do visit uh, the United States. Do you see a difference in the Kira world in Israel versus in America? One very important point is there's a big age gap. Uh-huh. You know, the college students in America are much younger because, you know, they're like 18. They're straight, usually straight out of high school. And the Israeli students are much older because they do the army. Mm-hmm. That's at 18. And then generally, like, you know, it's sort of the done thing that they go, at least for a year, they go traveling. So I would say that our average age is, you know, 25 to 30. Oh, wow. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Right. I find something interesting, and that is that every Makarov, you know, people are very passionate about what they do, people who enjoy what they're doing, and they feel like they're doing something Lishim Shamayim. So people bring themselves to what they do, and I find that they tend to use the tools that connect them to Judaism. They tend to draw students that would connect to those kind of tools, you know? So I find it interesting. I wonder if there's a correlation between the people that insist that students can't handle deep ideas or that they don't have an attention span, you want to wonder about the person who's saying that. Do they have a problem with an attention span? Do they have a problem with deep (laughs) ideas? Uh I have a theory. I don't even know if it's 100% true, but I find that the students usually like what the Makarov likes because it happens on a subconscious level. Well, we're relating to people's energy. You know, we're relating to the energy that they emit. And there's a reason I'm going to be drawn to this speaker versus you being drawn to that speaker. Right. Or Makarov. Interesting. Wow. So you're wondering if the Kirov in the United States might be more a reflection of the Makarvin. I feel like it's very, very hard to make it. I think it's important. Like you hear this all the time. Mishpacha has been talking about it a lot that people espouse uh, theories and we really don't have the research to back anything up. So everybody's really talking from their own personal experience. Mm-hmm. You know, so what works in Kiruv? Everybody has their theories. Does anybody actually know? It's almost impossible to even define what the word works means, you know, what's considered a success in general and what produces that success. So I tend to not like blanket statements about anything much, but especially about Kiruv, because I really feel like everybody's really just talking from their their own experience? And could a different person, like you say, with different energies, you know, attract different types of students and achieve different kinds of results? You know, it seems very clear. I mean, I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist. You know, like, I don't think that that's such a revolutionary idea. I think that, you know, works in many different areas, you know, yeshivas and which kind of buffer in a certain rush yeshiva uh, attracts or a certain seminary attracts. And then they have a whole theory about it why it works and this is the best way. You know, in other words, it's just that's the way people are. So yeah, it's not just that we're attracting that energy. We're also then interpreting our results based on our biases. So <laughs> it's hard to really come out with any clear answers. I mean, I remember back in the day, you and I used to joke about how easy we had it here. All we had to do was serve a good challenge and everybody was on board while you were out there, you yeah. know, fighting these feminist uh, battles and then what have you. You know, that's another aspect of like this feminine kind of thing, energy in the world in general, that the focus on experiential and the focus on on subjective. And I think that Chalant is a great tool and anything, you know, hot soup on a cold night and the chance to feel connected. And if you want to take it from the perspective of like, does that work? I would say it works very much with Israelis. Also, we're all, every human being is always looking for a feeling of being connected to something and a feeling of community. 
But I can tell you that I'm just thinking as you're talking, I could give you like a nice concrete example of this idea of like this tolerance, the experiential aspect. So we at the Onik Shabbat were regularly up until like three or four in the morning, not with necessarily the whole 200 girls that were at the Shabbos, but by the time four o'clock rolls around, we could still have 20, 30 students sitting around talking. So it slowly dwindles down. But we used to start off, and it's true that we we, we are more provocative very often. Mm-hmm. Although when I say we are more provocative, you know, I guess maybe that also has to do with me. I'm not saying every single Nefesh UD branch works the same way. And probably, you know, it has a lot to do with personality. But we used to start off the evening by asking them for a sentence that describes a religious Jew, you know, so that's like an issue that we talk about much more here. There's a lot of animosity and we sort of like to put it on the table to get it all out there. And, and in America, I don't know if you even have that animosity that you have to deal with. Maybe you're coming from a totally different angle, but I just want to explain to you the difference. So like the girls would say all the nasty things they could think of about from people, mm-hmm. you know, they sit and learn and they don't support themselves. They have a million children. They're always pregnant, like all their lovely, you know, heartwarming stereotypes. Right. Right. And there was a certain amount of tension. Then we would do a thing where the staff could also say a statement about the students, mm-hmm. about what they think about the secular world. And we did it on purpose, like to sort of like stir up, or like put it all out there on the table. And that was like an excellent trigger for great conversations all night. And recently, a few years ago, we started something else. And it's so funny. And it's like really interesting. Again, if you look at it from the outside, instead of asking that question, we make the focus on questions. Instead of asking, like, what do you think about the religious world or what do you think about the secular world? We make the whole evening about questions. And we start off by saying that asking the question is part of a relationship. You know, if you ask a question, you're showing that you're interested in the other person. So we sort of say, you know, we're going to open this up to questions. Maybe the staff has some questions for the students. Maybe the students have some questions for the staff. And it's fascinating because that one little word, question versus statement, changed the dynamic completely. Wow. In other words, we used to have a lot of energy. It was always interesting, fun. We got into great discussions, but there was some tension there. And just using the word question, like, I wonder, you know, how you feel, you know, what were you worried about before you came to our program? Let's say a staff would ask the student that, or um, it's interesting to me to know how did your family react to what you're learning in FSUD. Mm-hmm. And then the student would say something like, how do you feel about having a lot of children? Right. Like we were talking about human beings, the tension on both sides. You know, a religious person, a firm person feels completely different. Someone says to them, you know, you have a million kids and you don't take care of them versus how do you feel about having a lot of children? Right. You know, it right. changes Yeah. So in my world, we call that the shift from judgment to curiosity. Right. You know, and when you open things up with curiosity, you immediately relax everybody's amygdala because when people feel judged, you know, all their defenses go on high alert. And yes, it's exciting, but the charge is there. And when people aren't safe, they're really not open to learning. So that's a fascinating shift that really kind of correlates with a lot of what we've learned about the brain and how to get people in a receptive mode. Very interesting. We just have a few minutes left, and I was curious for your reflections on, have you noticed a shift in the McCarvin? From my perspective, it felt to me like Kirov was sort of a boundaryless obligation. You know, you were expected to have people, you know, speak to students for hours on end, 
you had no day, you had no night, you had no Shabbos, you know, Shabbos, which is usually a day that people can just kind of turn off was sometimes the Makarov's busiest day. Are you noticing any shift in how Makarvim are viewing their responsibility? I mean, you know, today is, you know, it is more of a profession kind of thing. It has certain requirements and certain um, expectations that you have to fulfill and you have to worry about recruitment, you have to worry about number of students, you have to worry. So maybe that influences the way people look at it. But I, I see so many people who are working really out of a tremendous love, you know, for Jews and for Judaism. And I see a lot of idealism. I see a lot of passion. It could be because there's such a focus like on social media and recruiting and staying in touch and keeping people involved. The kind of people that are drawn more or the kind of people who are doing a lot of the work are maybe good at that kind of thing. You know, maybe there is a slightly more emphasis on, you know, marketing and maintaining contact and things like that. But I still see plenty of people having Shabbos guests. I feel like in general, people are probably becoming more uh, self-aware mm-hmm. and more aware of what their motives are and anything that they do. I think that's sort of like a trend that we see in the world. One of the areas that I'm thinking about is just with technology, the importance of boundaries. You know, it's just so easy, let's say, for, you know, opposite gender McCarvin to get into, let's say, you know, a texting relationship with a student and then just having to really maintain those boundaries. So I, I'm just wondering if in general, McCarvin are going in with a much higher level of needing to make boundaries. I have to say I'm not, you know, because I'm not involved in that aspect, I don't have to maintain contact with the students mm-hmm. all the time over text or whatever. So I can't really say anything much about that. But I do think that the bottom line is that Kirov at its basic, most, uh, you know, deepest essence, it's about relationship. Yeah. You know, it's about relationship between people. It's about relationship between us and Hashem. And you can reach people through all different kinds of electronic means. And there's ways to, you know, maintain relationships that didn't exist before. But the bottom line, is, it is a relationship. Yeah. And, you know, the Makarev and the person that's in touch with the student, it has to be there. Yeah, it's interesting because before when you were saying how everybody's going to have their own theory about, you know, what makes successful Kirov, I was thinking... Isn't it just connection? I mean, isn't connection at the root of it all? And then I thought, oh, well, that's just my bias. But I think there is an element of truth to that. It depends which aspect of curve you're talking about. If you're trying to get the person in the door, that might be different than once the person is starting to think deeply about things and how much this really affects them on a personal level and where they see themselves in relation to those ideas. And I think that the deeper you get into the depth of, of what Yiddishkeit is about, the more the connection is going to play a role. Right. The connection between people, you know? Yeah, I hear that. So you want to uh, wrap us up? Any final parting message you want to send out to whoever's listening about Kirov or in general? My thoughts about Kirov is that I think that in general, we all need to develop a more sophisticated understanding of Yiddishkeit. Without negating the challenge and the ragalach and the warmth and having somebody over for Shabbos and whatever, these are all always have been and always will be. You know, Torah is, you know, like we just said, it's always about connection, a bit between people, between Yidin, between different types of Jews and between us and Hashem. But I feel that with all the emphasis on reaching the masses and sending out messages, I feel like a more sophisticated understanding of Yiddishkeit on our part will tend to spill over. 
You know, like I feel like a lot of time, a lot of the messages that are going out there, you know, that Hashem loves us, there's Hashgacha Pratis, all very important messages. But I feel like if we, as from people, you know, very often people hear care of classes, oh, we really have to bring this to the, you know, the from schools. Right. And I think that that's true on a very basic level. Like really, there's a lot of things that we do just because this is the way we do it. But when you delve into it, Torah is just so incredibly beautiful, such incredible depth and awareness of human beings and their nature and what Hashem wants from us and what's the ideal that we're working towards. And so many of the superficial outside things, let's say, you know, how we do Shaduchim, if you delve into the philosophy behind it, the ideas behind it, it's talking about a very, very sophisticated, nuanced understanding of men and women and, you know, what it means to build a relationship and I sort of feel like the more we from people are inspired by the beauty that, that is there, the more that will spill out to the other world. Like less superficial we live, mm-hmm. the more inspiring is what we have to offer. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for that courageous message. It's not a message we hear often. It's a little revolutionary. We've gotten um we've gotten very comfortable with the messages of comfort. And like you said, they are super, super important. We would never want anybody to not do whatever they are comfortable doing. And at the same time, I appreciate your gentle nudge to each of us to take the responsibility, you know, take the responsibility for strengthening our own knowledge and become that shining light that sort of, you know, casts the light outward and people are curious about. That when we radiate that confidence and knowledge, um, how attractive that is. So I really, really want to thank you for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule to be with us today. This was enlightening, eye-opening, and I'm so grateful. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Sarah. Thank you for listening to Makeshift. Enjoy this episode. Share it with your friends. Have a comment to share about this episode, a topic you'd like to discuss, or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at familyfirstatmishpacha.com or at mishpacha.com slash makeshift, where you can also subscribe to receive updates and new episodes. This episode was produced by Jag in Detroit Podcast. Makeshift, a Mishpacha podcast.